Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. Today's episode is a Nobel Peace Prize special. We talk about state repression of journalists. On December 10th, the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize will be presented to journalists Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov. The decision was welcomed as a recognition of growing media repression. Last year, 62 journalists were killed on the job. So I called one of the authors of the most comprehensive investigation of the killing of journalists to date, our very own Anita Godes. Together with co-author Zabina Carey, she found that, somewhat counterintuitively, the majority of journalist killings happens in democracies. I called her to ask why. Anita Godes is professor of international and cybersecurity here at the Hattie School. Her research focuses on contentious politics in the cyber realm with a current emphasis on large-scale quantitative analyses of state behavior. Anita and I discuss the conditions that put journalists in danger in democracies, the instrumentalization of social media, the intersection between online and offline politics during protests, and how to better protect journalists and freedom of expression. Now, I'm excited to welcome Anita Godes as our December guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Anita. Hi, Katharina. Hi. You're our go-to person for podcast recommendations. Let us know, what are you listening to these days besides the Berlin Security Beat, obviously? Well, obviously, I'm listening to our own podcast. I'm a big fan, <laughs> but I've been listening to so many podcasts over the last months, years. My favorite at the moment that I can recommend is the Lazarus Heist it's from the BBC. It's one of the best I've listened to in the last couple of months. It's got everything in there. It's about hacking. It's about cybercrime. It's got North Korean history in there. That's exciting. Hollywood corruption, money laundering. Um, so I really recommend it. And you also learn a ton about just how cyberspace works. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> As I said, this is the Berlin Security Beat, and I always like to ask, what song best describes the current state of the world? So next to my passion for studying state repression and cyberspace, I love and I'm obsessed with pop culture. And so I also listen to a lot of podcasts on pop culture. And I actually think there's this current meme going around about sad girl autumn, you know, feeling kind of sad and gloomy about the state of the world. And I feel like that really describes our current state. So I was thinking of the new album by Adele and Taylor Swift, really capturing the current gloomy feeling about two years of pandemic. So I'd say Taylor Swift releasing a 10-minute version of an old song about an ex-lover really captures the gloom that many people are feeling at the moment. So that's my, my feeling. Absolutely. This is so now. On December 10th, the Nobel Peace Prize will be presented to journalists Maria Risa and Dimitri Muratov for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression in a world in which, according to the committee, democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. Last year, 62 journalists were killed on the job. Anita, you and your co-author Zabina Carey have investigated journalist killings. What did you find? So one of the big surprises in doing this work was that the majority of journalists that are killed on the job outside of active warfare are killed in democratic countries. 
that's unexpected. Studies have shown that democracies are better at protecting their citizens. Isn't there what Davenport calls domestic democratic peace? Absolutely. And that is true. Generally, research shows us that democracies are better at protecting human rights than autocracies are for a number of reasons. They're better at institutionalized ways for citizens to voice their grievances and they just have more checks and balances and there's more accountability for the abuse of power by state leaders. But in the past couple of decades, we've seen that states have really also been abusing human rights in, in democratic countries. That really is puzzling. You tried to figure out what's going on there. Maybe let's start with the question, who's targeted? What types of journalists are in particular danger? So we collected data from 2002 till 2016. And one of the things that we saw was that most of the journalists killed, particularly in democracies, are very low profile. They work in remote regions. They work in the country that they are from. These are not fancy foreign journalists. They oftentimes work outside of the capital city in, in very remote places. But why kill them? Why not use non-lethal forms of repression? So, I mean, this is a heavy topic and we were puzzled to see just the amount of journalists killed within democracies, particularly these kind of low profile or less high profile journalists. And this is not to say that they don't experience other forms of intimidation or imprisonment. But if you think about it from the perspective of a democratic country and from democratic politicians, imprisoning a journalist or publicly attacking them establishes a clear line of responsibility. It's clear that you are the one who has committed this act, whereas the disappearance or getting rid of someone is a way to be less obvious about your involvement in one of these killings. And so perversely, we kind of see that even though killings are a much more extreme form of violence, they can actually be less costly for democratic leaders. Well, you mentioned that the political system plays a role. How is that? So the political system plays a role because we see that specifically in democracies, lower level politicians, so local mayors, local authorities, don't have the power to actually influence the broader media landscape. They don't have the power to legislate new laws or bring in other types of regulations that, for example, would change the funding or make media houses less independent. So what they can do is target the individual messengers and target the individual people who might be going after them to cover some kind of unwanted story about their involvement in corruption or other types of dealings. And so in a way, we see that specifically for local level politicians, directly targeting journalists is their way to influence media freedom. What about the repercussions? What's the level of impunity? So the Committee to Protect Journalists, one of the prime organizations lobbying for the security of journalists, or protection for journalists, has shown that in the last two decades, The levels of impunity when it comes to journalist killings has been by about 90%. Oh, man. Exactly. So if you try to attack a journalist, specifically maybe low-profile journalists, the probability of you being caught and being held accountable is very low. Am I getting this right? The decentralization of power can, in effect, cause what Gareton calls authoritarian enclaves within democracies? So we see that in some democratic countries... 
we have what might be called authoritarian enclaves. And those are areas that are oftentimes removed from central political power, where the rules of the game are less democratic. And something that we find in our work is that specifically this decentralized political power, which comes with more fiscal and more political power at the local level, can provide these perverse incentives whereby local politicians have more to lose if they were not to be re-elected. And so once you have more to lose, it means that you are maybe more willing to go to more extreme measures to protect your image and protect unwanted stories from seeing the light. Well, you work with large data sets. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you gather that data. And then I'm interested in, maybe you can pick a story for us to illustrate those findings, like introduce us to one of these not so well-known victims of state repression in democracies. So this data was actually, I'd say for my projects, one that doesn't have, you know, huge amounts of data. We're looking at the country level for a period of a bit longer than a decade. We're basically trying to understand how many journalists are killed in these countries and specifically then also where those journalists were located. So were they located in the capital, further removed? Did they work for very well-known international media houses or maybe less well-known regional media houses. So that tells us something about the visibility of the journalists. And so what we really find is that most of these journalists who are killed are working very far removed from the capital. They're working for regional outlets. Many of them maybe were fixers or in other ways involved in the gathering of information on, for example, unwanted stories. And so that really kind of tells us about who is targeted and who can be targeted without it having broader repercussions. And so we're, of course, not the first people to investigate this question of journalist killings. And there are a lot of fantastic case studies looking at who actually is targeted and in what context. So we have lots of evidence from countries such as Indonesia or the Philippines or Brazil showing that specifically those that are far removed from the capital, that are maybe even working on environmental stories that are not something that leaders want to see the light of day, those are oftentimes the journalists that then ultimately get killed. And we really relied on these case studies to look into more detail at what these mechanisms look like And then our data could prove that this is something that holds across a longer period of time and then also across lots and lots of different countries. And specifically this big finding that it's mostly democratic countries where we see this type of violence happening. In the press release about the 2021 Peace Prize, the committee says Ms. Rissa and Rappler have also documented how social media is being used to spread fake news, harass opponents, and manipulate public discourse. While some of your research focuses on just that, maybe you can let us in on some of your findings. This is an interesting question, and I think the point that they're making in this press release is a really important one. We've seen that through the internet, things such as citizen journalism, microblogging, and other types of independent digital journalism have really flourished. They're making it increasingly hard for states to use more conventional forms of curtailing media freedom. So you might shut down a newspaper, but that doesn't mean that you're able to get rid of independent digital journalists. And so we're seeing that states are now trying to fight for new ways of controlling the media landscape. One of them is through censorship. And so you might want to shut down the internet. You might want to censor access to certain platforms such as Facebook or Twitter, or you might want to get those platforms to remove content 
But it turns out it's very difficult to actually get Facebook to take down content, especially if you're not in the U.S. Can you maybe give me an example from your studies of how a state tries to manipulate in that way? Yeah, so we've seen, for example, Twitter will publish the number of takedown requests they get from countries, and then they'll show what the level of compliance is. And the level of compliance varies massively across countries. And it turns out that Twitter is more happy to comply with takedown requests from Germany than it is, for example, from Russia. And so specifically authoritarian countries are seeing that if they can't actually get somewhere with censorship, another more effective way maybe is to actually get in the game of producing content and producing content that is either casting doubt on opposition members or actively cheerleading the type of actions that are committed by the state. And so we're seeing that specifically if we're thinking about Maria Ressa or we're thinking about the Philippines or Russia, we're seeing that, you know, there's a real active participation of state actors in trying to shape online discourse, trying to discredit opponents. And a lot of that is accompanied by massive forms of harassment, specifically of women journalists um, in this context. That state activity that you just described, are you finding a consistent state activity or does it correlate with certain events or how should we imagine that? There's a lot of fantastic research now being produced in this area, looking at state activities, for example, in Russia or in China, but also in the Philippines. We definitely see that there is strong variation depending on the current day politics. So when we see lots of people taking to the streets during protests, there is more likely to be broad forms of online involvement by states, for example. And there's a lot of responsiveness happening there. And that kind of reflects this notion that What's happening on the streets is very much reflected in the, in the online space as well. All right. From what you're telling me, it sounds that by now our experience and scholarship points to the fact that initial hopes about social media and the internet helping to democratize societies might have been overly optimistic, right? I mean, I still try to be a cyber optimist. I know it's difficult nowadays, but I think You know, we wouldn't see this type of investment by state actors in trying to manipulate online spaces and trying to censor online spaces if there weren't some kind of grain of truth that this actually might have some positive democratizing effect. And so I think we're seeing a constant kind of cat and mouse game between state and non-state actors. In many cases, we're seeing state actors having the upper hand, but I wouldn't say that all is lost. <laughs> well, that's a great antidote against the gloom and doom we talked about initially. The 2020 World Press Freedom Index shows that the coming decade will be decisive for press freedom as multiple crises threaten the right to freely report its independent, diverse and reliable information. What are the policy implications from your research? What needs to change so I think we need to, in this age where specifically citizen journalism and the type of independent digital journalism, as we've seen, for example, by Rappler, by Maria Ressa and colleagues, has taken on such a big importance, we need to really conceptualize media freedom beyond more traditional types of newspapers, TV stations, and so on and so forth. And we're kind of in this era where everyone has a mouthpiece online, and we need to make sure that those forms of journalism are respected within this context. So I think that's a really, really important implication of the type of work that they're doing. And I'm delighted to see it reflected in the Peace Prize of this year. I think more direct policy implications of our own work, so Sabina Carey and my work, really is that 
Democracies, specifically democratic institutions at the national level, are no safeguards for the protection of media freedom at the subnational level. And specifically from a German perspective, for decades we've been preaching about the importance of decentralization, of fiscal decentralization. And those things are, on the one hand, great, but we have to think them together with strengthening judicial systems, strengthening anti-corruption measures, and really think about how we're otherwise creating these pockets of impunity that lead to the types of abuses of journalists that we document in our work. Mm. On December 9 and 10 this year, U.S. President Joe Biden will host a virtual summit for democracy. The U.S. government will announce commitments to bolster free and independent media there. Are you optimistic that that's a step in the right direction? I mean, it'll be interesting to see who actually turns up to this event, who gets invited, right? Uh, who gets to qualify as a democracy and who not. I think putting media freedom on the general agenda and seeing it as closely interlinked with democratic institutions as it is, is incredibly important. To what extent a meeting of democratic nations working on this topic will actually have an effect, I'll be interested to see. I don't think I have strong expectations at this point, but... I'm happy to be surprised otherwise. <laughs> Thank you. Now we've talked a lot about your last paper, but I'm always curious to know, what are you working on now? What are the next things you're setting your eyes on? I continue to be incredibly interested in this intersection between online and offline politics, specifically in the context of protest and repression. And so in some ongoing projects, I'm looking at this with some co-authors in Syria, but also in Russia. This is really the area in which I am very passionately trying to investigate. How do we actually see different types of uh, strategic responses to protests being interlinked between online and offline spaces? Very interesting. Last question on reading recommendations. I'm still compiling a wish list for Christmas. What books should be on there? So I actually have a list of books I want to read over Christmas as well. I have two here that I'm very excited to read. One is by Dana Moss. It's called The Arab Spring Abroad. It's about diaspora activism against authoritarian regimes. I've read some of her previous work. I'm very excited to read this book. This is an academic book. A less academic book, but equally exciting book is by Nicole Perlroth, who is one of the cybersecurity reporters at the New York Times. And she just wrote a book called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And it's about cyber weapons, specifically about kind of the market of vulnerabilities that influence cyber warfare. And so I think that's going to be a really exciting read as well. So those are up on my list, but I have a whole bunch of other books I want to read as well. Thank you for the list. And thank you for doing this. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Katarina. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. <laughs>